Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Good morning, Ashley. Good morning, Candy. You know what? What? It's afternoon. It is afternoon. This is unusual for us. We got a late start today. We We did. But it's gorgeous outside. It's a nice, bright, sunny day. And we are here to talk about a legend. Yes, we are. We are talking about the one and only queen of rock and roll, Tina Turner, yes. today. So I am gearing up for a really, really emotional. Yeah, well, and yes, emotional and big episode mm-hmm. because this woman, so impressive, so impressive. When you think of Tina Turner, Ashley, what are some of your memories or associations that immediately come to mind? Well, I think of her era in the the big hair, mm-hmm. the sparkly, the beautiful dancing, the, the her legs, how gorgeous she mm-hmm. is, and just that massive, impressive voice. Yes. And her volatile relationship with her husband. Yeah, I think that always comes to mm-hmm. mind. But I agree with you. I think about her as being not only incredibly talented as a singer, but she was about spectacle. Mm-hmm. She knew how to do the costumes. Mm-hmm. She could dance. Mm-hmm. She, of course, had that fabulous figure and she knew how to work a stage, that mane of hair. Yeah. I mean, this was a woman whose stage presence was just unbelievable. I think I saw a video where she was walking out on some catwalk over the audience and I don't think she had any kind of support system. She was just like going for it. It was confidence. So, yes. This was a woman who just owned her her stage and and probably you know as she walked through life she still exuded that same confidence I'm gonna guess well this was really fun for me because I of course knew Tina from you know encountering her over the years Mm -hmm. as a performer and Mm -hmm. as she would come across my radar but I'd never done a deep dive like this before And so I feel like I know her so much better now. And of course, I have great respect for her. But the sad news is when I started to research, of course, Mm -hmm. everything that came up were these tributes because she just passed away very recently. She did pass away at her home in Switzerland on May 24th, 2023. She was 83 years old. And as all these tributes were flooding in, it reminded me of how wonderful she is. But I saw one that I wanted to, to share with you guys just very briefly. On Good Morning America, they were doing a little tribute in honor of her. And I'm going to play just about 24 seconds of this. It's so short. But it's the part where their anchor woman, Deborah Roberts, is basically summarizing why Tina Turner has always been just such an iconic person. So impactful. Yes, in our Mm. culture and in the music industries. Tina Turner was a towering legend who not only broke music records and accumulated Grammys and a solid place in the Rock and Roll Hall 
Hall of Fame, while also, Robin, as you said, tearing up any stage that she stepped onto. But she was also a potent symbol of strength and survival, a woman who herself said she was all about showing other women how to strive for success on their own terms. So I really like that mm -hmm. because I think what she brought out was that she's not just significant to us because of her accomplishments as an artist, but because of how she inspired us as a woman mm -hmm. and as a survivor and just her impact as a person, just as a human being. Yeah. And so I'm excited to dig into this. Before I do, though, let me let me just quickly say two things. I did do a deep dive. Okay. I hit so many sources. I read a lot. I also saw so many video clips. I got to see Tina herself in so many interviews where she would be speaking to different people. Oprah was someone that she spoke with quite a bit. So I'm going to try not to bog us down. I may not always identify this came from this interview, okay. but a lot of this came directly from Tina herself. She also, I had a lot of quotes that were taken from her memoirs. But you'll have it in the sources. Yes, absolutely. All of it's in the show notes. One thing I will mention was there was a documentary called Tina Turner, Simply the Best that I did reference several times okay. in this. Also wanted to give a quick disclaimer. There will be, as you might expect, a few references to abuse mm -hmm. and drug use. So just listener discretion mm -hmm. in case that's something that you would like to keep in mind. Going back to Tina's early life, did you know that she was not born Tina Turner? I think I did know that. Okay. Yes. Yes. Her name was Anna Mae Bullock. She was born in 1939 in Brownsville, Tennessee, which was near a little town called Nutbush, Tennessee. And that's where most people think about. They just kind of say she's from Nutbush. And she later made the town famous, actually, with a song, Nutbush City Limits, which oh, was neat. very well known. Mm -hmm. Her parents each had different jobs over the course of her life. But when Tina was very young, her father worked as an overseer of this sharecropper group at the Poindexter Farm on Highway 180. And so she later recalled picking cotton with her family at an early age. But in a Rolling Stone interview, Tina described her family as well-to-do farmers and church people. Mm. Her father was actually a deacon in the church. But unfortunately... They did not get along. She straight up said they didn't love each other. Who? Her her parents? Her parents okay. did not love each other. And so she remembers a lot of fighting. Mm. Mm -hmm. She had two older sisters. The oldest, Evelyn Juanita, was a half-sister that Tina's mom, Zelma, had actually had before she married Tina's dad, Floyd. And then she had another sister that was a full biological sister. Mm -hmm. That was Ruby Aline. But again, Tina and her sisters did not have a very stable childhood. There was the fighting, but they also moved around a lot. Mm. During World War II, the parents, Floyd and Zelma, worked for a few years in a, a defense plant in Knoxville. So the three sisters didn't go with them necessarily. They, they were kind of split up. I'm not sure where the others went, but I know that Tina was sent to live with her strict, very religious grandparents on her dad's side in Nutbush. Okay. Once the war ended, the girls did reunite with their parents. They lived for a couple years in Knoxville before then they moved back to Nutbush as a family. But when Tina was 11, her parents split up. Supposedly, the main factor was that Tina's father was abusive and her mm. mother was ready to get out of the situation mm -hmm. and she just left. And Tina would later say that it was very unexpected oh. and she didn't take the girls with her. She just, oh. just kind of got she out. She just left, mm -hmm. left. And Tina actually said a few different times that she'd never really felt like her mom wanted 
wanted the children necessarily, that it was just a situation her mom kind of got trapped. Fell into. Yes, that would be a better way to say it. You have Tina and her sisters with her dad, but he ends up getting married just a year or two after this, and he moves to Detroit, leaving Tina to be raised with her grandmother on her mom's side. This was Georgiana Curry in Nutbush. So neither one of them wanted the kids, or was it just Tina? Tina did not feel very loved by her parents. Yes, that was something that she talked about different times. Mm -hmm. But I think she was grateful for the support that her grandparents gave her. Because remember, she spent a good part of her childhood with the grandparents. With the grandparents. And I think they gave her a nice, stable upbringing. Mm. She said in a 2005 interview with Oprah that, quote, we weren't in poverty. We had food on the table. We just didn't have fancy things like bicycles. One of her big memories that she talked about was singing in the choir at the Baptist church. She said, quote, we were church people. So on Easter, we got all done up. I was very innocent and didn't know much else. I knew the radio, B.B. King, country and Western, Mm -hmm. but that was kind of her experience. She was a little sheltered. Mm -hmm. She went to church a lot. She said she was a tomboy. In high school, she was not only on the girls' basketball team, but she also did some cheerleading in support of the basketball team, I believe. She described herself as being very social. She said she took every opportunity to socialize, Mm -hmm. which fits my image of Tina Turner (laughs) perfectly. So I loved hearing that. So when their grandmother passed, away, which was when Tina was only 16, Tina and her sister, Ruby Aline, went ahead and moved to St. Louis, Missouri to live with their mother. Now, just since I'm sure this will come up several times, in all the interviews, they referred to Tina's sister as just Aline. So I'm going to call her Aline. Okay. And she ends up being a big songwriter. Ooh. Yes. Now, sadly, by this point, their older sister had passed away. Oh, no. She Yes, she died when she was only around 19 years old in a car crash. Oh. Yeah. So it's just the two of them. Yes, gone. very sad. And they haven't seen mom since she left them. I don't know if there were visits, but okay. she, yeah, for, for quite some time. No contact They've been mom. living with grandparents. Okay. So I don't know how often they had the contact with their mother. But they are now with her, and it was in St. Louis that Tina finished high school. But even while she was still in school, she and her sister, Alice, began to visit some of the local clubs and it was while they were at the Manhattan Club in East St. Louis that Tina first encountered musician Ike Turner Mm -hmm. whose band the Kings of Rhythm was very popular in that area in fact she would talk about being entranced by his musicality you know Mm -hmm. he could really play a guitar the man owned the stage he ran the band yeah so she was entranced by his talent and just what you're saying about her childhood she is just ripe for this abusive person because she didn't feel loved by either parent. She's had a strict upbringing from her grandparents. She's very sheltered, very naive. This charming guy is going to come in and treat her in a way that feels normal to her from people that are supposed to love her. Well, there are going to actually be a few more complications before we even get to that point. Mm. Uh, this surprised me. I don't, I maybe you've heard of this before. I had not. Let me, let me fill you in. So before long, he realizes she can sing. She kind of forced her way on the stage actually and kind of grabbed a mic at some point. <laughs> but once he realized she could sing, he recruited her to join his band as a singer mm-hmm. and she was performing under the name little ann mm, this and, is the name thing i do know i know okay a little bit about this okay we're gonna get to that in just a second okay. so i'll let you fill us in when we get there now she is only 17 he's 25 and by the way i did not do the deep dive on ike but i will tell you this man always had the ladies before it was all said and done i believe he had something like 14 marriages and, and when he wasn't married to them he was he was he was living with people or having relationships so 
it was a thing with him to always be involved with the ladies. And I got the impression that he also was very controlling in those relationships with all the different ladies. Mm -hmm. So he had already had several relationships before Tina even came along. He's 25. He's actually living with somebody at this time. Here's a quote from Tina talking about her early encounter with Ike. This is to Oprah Winfrey. Ike had come to the house to ask Ma if it was okay for me to sing with him. He knew I had the potential to be a star. We were close, like brother and sister. On his off nights, we'd drive around town and he would tell me about his life, his dreams. He told me that when he was young, people found him unattractive. That really hurt him. I felt bad for him. I thought, I'll never hurt you, Ike. I meant it. He was so nice to me then, but I did see the other side of him. So in that quote, she alludes to the fact, this is something she talks about a lot in all the different interviews. She wasn't attracted to him at first. She thought of him as a friend. They had a brother-sister relationship. Mm -hmm. She was just drawn to his talent, Mm -hmm. and they became close, sharing these things with each other, and he's great to her at this point. Now, her first recording was in 1958. She is credited as one of the vocalists on the single Box Top under the name Little Anne. And in 1958, when she was 18, only a few months after she graduated from high school, she had a son, Craig Raymond, which was actually from her relationship with one of the musicians in Ike's band. It was the saxophonist, Raymond Hill. But that didn't last. It was very short-lived because by 1960, she was involved with Ike. And in that year, they would have a son together named Ronnie in October. Now, I'm kind of finishing this personal part, and then I'm going to come back and hit the professional part, okay? Okay. After they married in 1962, Ike bought a house, and that is when they settled in with the kids, when they were not touring, of course. Ike adopted Tina's son, Craig. That was the first son. And then she adopted his two sons from his previous relationship with this woman he had been living with when they met. And then they had that other child together. So they and the four children were living now now in this house together. Okay. Okay. So let me go back and fill you in on what was happening, though, professionally. They started seeing some great success. I mentioned that 1960 was a big year for Tina because she had a child, of course. But it was also this year that she began performing as Tina Turner and they formed the Ike and Tina Turner Review. Now, do you want to tell us what you know about the name? Uh, Well, I don't know if I know how she got the name, but I think I remember reading at the end when they broke up that she wanted to retain her name Mm -hmm. and it was a big deal because that was something that was hers. It was something that he gave to her... And you can correct me, but I remember reading like this. It was this a big name, thing. This is a big thing about mm-hmm. her actual stage name of Tina Turner. And she wanted to keep it and yeah. how she got to keep it. Okay. Well, you're right. The name was huge. So Ike came up with it. Mm-hmm. And according to Tina, no consultation with her at yeah. all. This yeah. was just something he decided and he did. Reportedly, he chose the name Tina because it sounded similar to Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, which he liked. And he went ahead and gave her the last name Turner, although they were not married at that time. Because he would say, well, I guess he thought it sounded good, but he also would tell Tina all the time that he'd patented the name. He basically was saying, I own this name. I own this identity. And I own you. Well, and her comment was, yes, he owned owned her, but also 
if you ever leave, somebody else slides into that spot because I own this identity. So this was a very controlling move. Mm -hmm. So it was in a recording session in 1960 that Tina kind of had a big breakthrough moment. What happened was there was a singer who was supposed to be there doing the lead vocals and she did not appear. And so it was a situation where they basically said like, okay, Tina, you just like fill in. We're going to take your voice out and we'll replace you later, but we need somebody right now. Mm. So she steps in, does this recording session and the executives are so impressed with her. They convince Ike not to replace the vocals and that song, A Fool in Love, would go on to hit number two on the R&B singles chart and basically help to launch their career as they're trying to like start as this band doing this review on tour. Nice. So under the name, the Ike and Tina Turner Review, they began this rigorous touring schedule all around the U.S. and they started to build their reputation. In fact, one of the sources said they were rivaling other R&B shows like like the James Brown Review. Whoa. Yeah, they were pulling in the audiences. Mm -hmm. Tina was singing lead on most of their songs with the help of the female backup singers called the Ikeettes (laughs) and... Her husband was basically kind of a little more in the background because he was on guitar, but she was getting a lot of the star I I wonder if that was bothering him. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll come back to that. In 1966, they got out of their current contract. They signed with Phil Spector's Phillies label, and that led to their huge hit, Rivers Deep, Mountains High. And the impact of that record earned them a spot as an opening act for the Rolling Stones UK tour in 1966, which was big. Yeah, it's huge. And they would actually come back and, and tour again open for their stones later in 1969 but i'm just kind of i'm gonna let me i'm gonna give you another disclaimer this woman did too much for me to cover everything <laughs> we would be sitting here for the next three hours if i tried to hit everything so i'm i'm getting giving well, you highlights guys. i've got 12 hours left okay. on, on the card candy so we've got that, the i don't time. know that people are gonna give me that much time so so Nobody, please don't be disappointed. I, I can't get it all, but I'm going to I'm gonna hit highlights. It's a buffet. We're picking what yes, we want. We're yes, picking and yes. choosing. So over the years, they'd also put out some successful albums. They had received some critical acclaim, all of which led to a gig headlining a show in Las Vegas in 1969. And this was big for them. A variety of celebrities this even This is only came. nine years since mm-hmm. she started. Oh, yeah. And a variety of celebrities, including David Bowie, Janis Joplin, James Brown, Cher, Elvis, came to see their show. And of course, this means that Tina and Ike are rubbing elbows with the most celebrated artists around. Mm -hmm. I'm pausing there professionally because sounds like they're on top of the world. But here's what's happening. Personally? Personally. Oh, it's awful. I have no doubt it's awful. Uh, Yes, it is. (laughs) You are so right. Tina has openly stated in interviews, in her autobiographies, that Ike's affairs and his physical abuse began almost from the first moment that they started a romantic yeah, relationship. Yeah, I think he was waiting for her to turn 18. He was buttering her up, just doing the whole brother-sister thing. Oh, you're just a friend. I'm telling you my dreams. I'm being charming. She turns 18. He goes in for the quote-unquote kill, claims her, because he knows she's talented. He's seen the talent. And I think that's the part, actually, that she feels was most significant. It was when he saw her talent yep. and the power she could have had to yeah. do things on her own yeah. that he decided he had to control her. Mm-hmm. And one of his ways, his patterns, was to control women's through intimacy as well. Mm -hmm. I heard her share in an interview with Oprah her recollection about the first time he beat her. It was in 1960, right after they had recorded that single I mentioned, A Fool in Love. And she shared how shocked she was because the attack seemed to come out of nowhere and she was also pregnant at the Mm. time. In her second book, My Love Story, here's a little excerpt that tells a bit about this. Quote, 
First, he was verbally abusive. Then he picked up a wooden shoe stretcher. Ike knew what he was doing. If you play guitar, you never use your fists in a fight. Mm -hmm. He used the shoe stretcher to strike me in the head. Oh, gosh. Always in the head. In other interviews, she would say that he would just grab whatever was handy. You know, it might be a coat hanger, might be a shoe stretcher, like what we've just mentioned. A telephone, anything that's handy. And then if he couldn't find anything, yes, he would use his fists. But it was just his pattern to grab something and just immediately attack. Yes. How did she not have concussions or get... Well, she took a lot of abuse. Poor babe. A lot of abuse. So while she was so shocked at the time, in an excerpt from her second memoir, she gave a little bit of her reflection about why she thinks it happened. And this goes back to what we were just saying. She explained that their song, A Fool in Love, made them big money for the band. Something like $25,000, which is huge. Think about oh, in yeah. 1960. It's, it's huge now, Candy. Well, True. <laughs> And she noted, quote, my relationship with Ike was doomed the day he figured out I was going to be his moneymaker. Yeah. He needed to control me economically and psychologically so I could never leave him. Now, she added in a different interview, quote, he was cruel because he depended on me. He didn't like that he had to depend on me. So two different factors there. You know, I like to be in control. I don't want to feel like I'm dependent on you, but also I need to control you so you can't ever leave. Yeah, because, because I need you're to. making the money. Yeah. You're, you're the star power. And then she actually gave a different insight when she was talking to Oprah a different time. And I thought this was interesting as well. She pointed out that she was the singer, something he always wanted to ah. be, but singing was not his thing. He was a very talented musician. musician. He could do so many things, piano, guitar, compose, lead a band. He could do so many things, but he was not a star singer. And she felt like that was something that really festered inside him and made him angry. Mm. Three different reasons she talked about why he might have been just so oh, hostile towards her, even if it was kind of subconsciously. Those are really good insights too. They are. They are. But she said she was very much in love with him when they were married and she was also grateful to him for what he'd done for her. Yeah. And that affected the way she looked at him and what mm -hmm. she put up with. Mm -hmm. She said, she used the word loyalty. Mm -hmm. She felt so much loyalty. And while she was in the moment, there was so much fear. And, you know, obviously she was so upset. But then she would say that she would actually feel sorry for him. Like she he would play into her emotions yeah. at other times. And so she, she used words like feeling trapped and just not knowing what to do. And I keep thinking about how young she was yeah. and how inexperienced she was. But she said it was like he was always angry and he treated her like she was the prisoner and he was the guard, which was another thing. She had very little freedom to try to to do things without well, yeah. him. In her second memoir, this is really sad, she shared that in 1968, when she was at a very, very low point in her relationship with him, one night she took something like 50 sleeping pills that had been prescribed to her because she was having trouble sleeping. And she, of course, woke up and she admitted that she was disappointed when she first woke up and realized she was still in this situation. And she described that Ike's response was to tell her she should have died. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Although it sounds hard to believe... Things actually got worse after they started performing in Vegas in 1969. Remember, that's where I left off yes. in their timeline a second mm -hmm. ago. I did that on purpose mm -hmm. because... Elvis is getting ready to... Elvis is in the audience. Mm -hmm. This is the pinnacle. He's probably getting ready to do his 69 comeback special. It's a lot. A lot of Vegas is buzzing. Yes. And this is when Ike is introduced to cocaine. 
Oh. So I could not find a source that told the definitive details of how this all played out, but I saw a huge number of sources that kept referencing some of the same details. So don't hold me to this, but my best understanding is that in his own autobiography, Ike must have said something. Of course, I've not read it, guys, but it kept being referenced. He must have said something about being introduced to cocaine by, quote, two very famous people that he had been working with while he was at the International Hotel in Las Vegas. And then this other person, a producer, D'Angela Proctor, alleged in this documentary called Unsung that those two famous people were Elvis Presley and Red Fox. Mm. And then in the documentary that I actually watched called Tina Turner Simply the Best, they actually also talked about Elvis being involved. What they said there was that Elvis and Ike had been partying together after one of the shows, Ike and Tina's shows, and that Elvis offered it to Ike in that context. Mm. And they said that Ike, all the sources seem to agree that Ike was immediately drawn to the drug. He had trouble sleeping anyway, but this reduced his need for sleep, which he felt gave him this extra time and focus on his music. So Mm. he thought it was helping him. Before long, of course, he was addicted. And this, I'm not going to go into this, but of course, this led to all sorts of problems with his health, with legal problems, including jail time he served. But it also meant big problems for Tina Mm -hmm. because the abuse much worse. Yes, it did. This hit me as being not just tragically sad, but also a bit ironic that in 1970, most people would have thought this was such a high point for Tina because that was when Ike and Tina did their Proud Mary performance. Yes, that's the one I know them for. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just blows you away to watch it. It It's just so powerful. That performance is amazing. But they performed Proud Mary on the Ed Sullivan show, and that basically introduced them to all of America. They became something of a household name after that. And then not long after that led to them recording that song, which to give full credit, that was actually a cover of a Creedence Clearwater revival song. But their version went on to reach number four on the pop charts and it won them a Grammy. So people would would think you guys have made it. You've got to be so happy. But while her career is skyrocketing behind the scenes, the abuse is escalating Mm -hmm. as his addiction is taking hold of him. In her second book, she shared one time he threw hot coffee in her face, giving her third degree burns. She told Oprah he would even beat her before they went on stage. She said, quote, he'd hit me in the ribs and then always try to give me a black eye. He wanted his abuse to be seen. And then a different quote from her was, another night we had a fight in the dressing room and when I went on stage, my face was swollen. I think my nose was broken because blood was gushing into my mouth when I sang. Before, I'd been able to hide under makeup, but you can't hide swelling. Mm. So he's just out of control with it. He's, yes. He's probably getting some kind of power surge Mm -hmm. from the fact that she can cover it up, but he knows it's there. And it's like something he's getting away with in front of all these people. Mm -hmm. And in the documentary, she commented, some people call me a foolish woman. I think it takes a smart woman to live with that man and to live in that situation. Talking about the fact that she felt so trapped, but she was still trying to find her way and, and survive and the kids, survive through it. Yes, the kids were a factor. She also commented in a different interview with Oprah that she may have seemed compliant, but she was always planning. Mm-hmm. Like her brain was mm-hmm. churning. What am I going to do? Her plan B. How am I going to get out of this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're about to talk about the part where she does get out of this. But why don't we take a quick break first? Sounds good. 
If you love Scandal Water and would like to help us keep the tea brewing, simply go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod, where you can become a monthly supporter or give a one-time gift. Cheers! We're back. So in terms of their relationship, things came to a head in July of 1976 when Ike and Tina flew to Dallas for a show. Tina shared that after they got off the flight, her husband began hitting her in a car on the way to the hotel. And so she basically decided this was it. While he was asleep, she slipped out of the room carrying only a mobile credit card and 36 cents. She even specified it was a quarter, a dime, and a penny. A Washington Post article written about Tina after her passing Mm -hmm. shared a little bit more about the experience so I'm going to ask you to read this please Ashley sure night was falling on July 1st 1976 and Tina Turner was supposed to be on stage launching another cross-country tour instead she was hiding among trash cans in an alley behind a hotel she knew people would be looking for her soon if they weren't already so after a few minutes she sprung from her hiding place and ran down the alley quote I wound up on a freeway Turner who died Wednesday at age 8 remembered later and I ran across that and into this Ramada Inn. She was wearing a white suit but it was splattered with dried blood. One of her eyes was swollen shut and she had intentionally left her trademark wig behind. I didn't know that was a wig. Oh yeah she wore wigs a lot. Oh. She asked to speak to a manager and as she recalled later told him I'm Tina Turner. I've had a fight with my husband as you can see. Will you give me a room? I can't pay you right now but I promise that I will. So as she told it that that clerk was very sympathetic when he saw her bloodied face and he did give her the room. She then called a lawyer she knew who she knew was sympathetic to her situation. Mm -hmm. And this person arranged for a friend to pick her up and they got her on a plane back to Los Angeles. And she said, quote, after my plane landed in California, my heart was in my ears. I was afraid Ike would be there because when I'd left once before, he tracked me down on a bus. Mm. So when I got off that plane, I ran like mad. I said to myself, if he's here, I'm going to scream for the police. And I had one chant in my head, I will die before I go back. Wow. So she was determined this time to make it happen. In a 2021 interview for Harvard Business Review, she said, for a long time, I felt like I was stuck with no way out of the unhealthy situation I was in. But then I had a series of encounters with different people who encouraged me. And once I could see myself clearly, I began to change, opening the way to confidence and courage. It took a few years, but finally I was able to stand up for my life and start anew. So that's what some of what motivated her to finally be able to mm-hmm. take that step. And she also did give credit in many interviews to her faith in Buddhism. She said that oh, was, okay. she became much more spiritual, she mm-hmm. said at some point, as she was dealing with this abuse, becoming more spiritual really helped her. So she and Ike were formed formerly divorced in 1978 after a long legal battle, which you probably would not be surprised to hear was very ugly. Yeah. An Oprah Daily article shared this excerpt from Tina's second memoir. Once she began the process of filing for divorce, he used his friends to intimidate her from moving forward. Often his stooges, as she calls them, would shoot bullets in her direction, even while she lived with her assistant and friend Rhonda Graham. Another night, they actually shot into the house. We were so scared that Rhoda slept in the boys' room and I slept in the closet because the room had a skylight and I was afraid there would be more shooting. So the first person was were her her quotes from the memoir. Yeah, I'm sure you picked that up. So as for the details of the divorce, Tina shared that he. This is kind of what you alluded to before. 
she just wanted out. Mm -hmm. She was not going to haggle over the monetary things. She needed out. So she did admit that he retained most of the earnings. He retained most of the assets that they had earned as a couple. And the divorce almost ruined her financially, but she was happy to get away from him. Basically, what she said she got was two cars, custody of the four sons, and the ability to retain her name. Her name. To add on to the financial difficulties... Because Tina had left the group, that review group, the tour failed. And so promoters and advertisers wanted money back. I'm I'm assuming from both her and Ike. But it was definitely something that she was being faced with. So for the next few years, Tina was taking anything, whatever gig she could get to try to make money to support her family. and To pay back the investors. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. And this included a cabaret act in Vegas. She would appear on the Hollywood Square. She performed on shows like the Donnie and Marie show, the Sun and share show the Brady Bunch hour everything was basically trying to make the money pay mm-hmm. things back and she did want to try to start to build a solo career yeah. she was trying to prove yeah that I that, can do it on my own yes I am worthy by myself I don't have to have this review or Ike she did release some solo albums but they did not do well according to that documentary I've named several times until 1983 Turner was considered a nostalgia act performing mostly at hotel ballrooms and clubs in the United States. She was finally given a second chance and signed with Capitol Records in 1983. Wow. And this is where everything's going to change. And this is probably where we all Mm -hmm. really are aware of her. Yes. In November of 1983, she released her cover of Al Green's song, Let's Stay Together. Mm -hmm. And it didn't do as well in the U.S., but it became a huge hit in England. And that prompted her studio to say, okay, we'll let you make this album, which turned out to be the unbelievably popular Private Dancer. Mm. It went on to spawn three top 10 hits, win her three Grammys, and that album was certified as five times platinum. Now, I saw differing reports, so I'm not sure what the actual data was, but one, actually this was several sources, said the album is estimated to have sold more than 20 million copies worldwide. Wow. Some said 10 million. You saw very different things. It's it's over. It's over. It's a lot. Okay. It's over 10. Now, she didn't like the song at first and had to be talked into recording it. The song, What's Love Got to Do With It? I was going to say, it. that's the one I know her for. But that's the one that made her, at 44 years old, the oldest female artist to score a number one hit. Get it, Tina. And now, at that point, since that point, somebody else may sure. have done it. But yeah. Reflecting on this in her 2021 HBO documentary, Tina, she said, Private Dancer wasn't a comeback. It was a debut. Mm. It was my first album she looked on it as starting over yes like this was her new identity this was her taking taking Mm -hmm. control of her career so she really was reinventing herself and all of a sudden she was a star again she was filling stadiums around the world during her private dancer tour and a cnn article described her comeback this way quote before long turner was a global superstar commanding mtv with her spiky wigs short skirts and famously long legs strutting across concert stages in three Three inch heels. Her talent earned her acclaim as the queen of rock and roll, while her resiliency made her a hero to battered women yeah. everywhere. Yes. When she sang of pain and heartache in her husky, full throated voice, every word rang true. Mm-hmm. That's a great quote. I'm I'm so happy that she didn't hide what happened to her, but she said, "This is what happened to me, and I'm coming through the other side, and I am." And just this is what happened. You know, mm-hmm. she wasn't a victim anymore because she kept telling. She kept telling. It was her 
story and she told it. Yeah. No, you're right. That is something I saw time and time again. Mm -hmm. People praising her for being so open, being vulnerable and sharing Mm -hmm. it, but also showing them you can be a survivor. Like she inspired people with her story. Yes. Yes. Well, in 1985, she sang on the all-star charity single, We Are the World. And that was big. And then she performed with Mick Jagger at the Live Aid concerts. That was huge. And one of Tina's dreams had always been to act in movies. So she had actually already appeared in the 1975 rock musical Tommy. But after her success with Private Dancer, she was given the opportunity to co-star in Mel Gibson's Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. You know, I have never seen any of the Mad Max stuff, but I want to see it. They said she was amazing in that. I saw that time and time again that she did such a fabulous job. But it also led to another hit song for her, We Don't Need Another Hero, was from that movie. Really? It was huge. Yes. So it was in 1986 that Tina met the man who would become the love of her life. I love it when stuff happens like that. He was a German music executive named Erwin Bach, who was sent by her record label to greet her at the airport one day. In relation to the Bach, I wonder. (laughs) Not that I'm aware, but I didn't look it up. Way to go, Tina. (laughs) Well, and and way to go, Tina. He was 16 years younger. What? Yeah. We got Agatha. (laughs) We got our girl, Verna. Maybe we got Tina. Yeah. So she's met him. They start a relationship pretty quickly. And that same year, she published her best-selling memoir, I, Tina, which is where she opened up about her early career and her abusive relationship with Ike. And it said that she had actually, we, we were just talking about this, so I'll come back to it. She actually first shared details about her abusive relationship in a 1981 interview for People Magazine, but that was small potatoes compared to this memoir. Mm, this is where- Broke it open. Yes, this is where people gave her credit, as we were saying a minute ago, for being so open and Mm -hmm. telling it all and being so truthful. And it did lead to the hit 1993 film, What's Love Got to Do With It, Mm -hmm. starring Angela Bassett. But I did find that while Tina was very involved in the making of the movie, they said she was on set. She would talk with Angela a lot to say, no, you know, it was like this this or Uh yes, or try this. But after the fact, or maybe it was somewhere along the way, she became unhappy because she felt that there were some inaccuracies she wanted it to stick dead on to her story yeah and she didn't like that they they fictionalized a few things here and there I can see Mm -hmm. both sides of it I can see her side of wanting this is really what happened this is what I want to say and then on the other side sometimes you have to do it for narrative economy Mm -hmm. right her acclaims keeps continues she has hit albums singles sold out concerts all of that continued through the late 80s and 90s and she remained really popular as a live act well into the early 2000s especially in England. They really loved her there. She only retired from performing in 2009. I did not realize that. Yes, this lady went on for so long. Going back though, back in the 1990s, she moved to Switzerland with her boyfriend, Erwin Bach. In 1997, she was talking to Larry King about it. And what she explained was, quote, I pay taxes here in the US. My family is here. I left America because my biggest success was in another country and my boyfriend was in another country. Europe has been very supportive of yeah. my music. Yeah. They did not marry until 2013, which was after 27 years of their romance. And it was four years after her retirement. But almost immediately, like within three to four weeks of their marriage, she started dealing with some very serious health problems. Do you think that they knew that and that's why they got married? I don't think so. Really? Because no, in the interviews, I got to see him talk sometimes too. And he basically said he just felt like it was time and he, he wanted to do it 
you know, for okay. her. Okay. And I think they were very surprised when three weeks after their wedding, Tina suffered a stroke. Mm. And it was very devastating. She mm. had to learn to walk again. Oh, gosh. Yes. But she did. And, mm. you know, she you know was able to regain her health. But then in 2016, she was diagnosed with intestinal cancer. Oh, no. And she used homeopathic remedies to try to treat her health conditions. But that, sadly, resulted in damage to her kidneys. Oh, no. And it was like this domino effect. So ultimately, she went into kidney failure. And she was to the point where she was being encouraged to start dialysis and she felt like she was reaching the end of her life but her husband did he give her a kidney he gave her (gasps) one of his kidneys she had transplant surgery in 2017 she made a a point in one of the interviews of talking about how it was his idea and she even said to him you're a younger man Mm -hmm. you have you have a lot of life ahead of you and he was like no i can live with one kidney i want he gave her his kidney yes so that was obviously life-changing i mean that you know that was wonderful in 2018 she published her second book which i've already referenced several times i've never given you the title though it was called my love story and she gave more details about her relationship with ike and of course also talked about my love story was her new husband so there was a whole lot about Irwin in there and then same year 2018 another huge accomplishment was the opening of tina the tina turner musical Mm -hmm. which she oversaw as an executive producer she was heavily involved in workshopping it they said as early as 2016 she was helping them to work on it and it was of course very successful it opened in london's west end in 2018 it opened on broadway in 2019 in 2020 she published another book called happiness becomes you a guide to changing your life for good which is a guide that she created to help people find more happiness based on principles she had learned during her long-standing faith in buddhism And that was the same year that she also came out with That's My Life, which was an authorized pictorial autobiography, you know, something that she said was okay for them to put out. And in 2021, they released the HBO documentary about her life that was simply titled Tina. Mm. A couple of sad things that happened. She did lose her two biological sons, her son, Ronnie, with, you know, her son she had with Ike, Mm -hmm. passed away in December of 2022 from complications of metastatic colon carcinoma. He had followed his parents into music. He was a bass player who was in the band Manufactured Funk. But actually, prior to this, I should have mentioned this earlier, back in 2018, she had already lost her son, Craig, who was Mm. her first son with Mm -hmm. the saxophonist. He died by suicide. Oh God! I know. So she had some. She had some tragedies. And then, not long after she lost Ronnie, she herself passed away just this past May. As we bring this to a close, we've talked about so many of her accomplishments already. But I'm going to give you just a few more. We've talked about the books, the musical, documentaries she's inspired. But here's a brief little summary from Business Insider. Her many accolades include two spots in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She was inducted with Ike Turner in 1990 and as a solo artist in 2021, a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Recording Academy, and eight Grammys. She was also a trailblazer and became the first black artist and the first woman to be on the cover of Rolling Stone. Mm. Now, in addition to those eight Grammys they mentioned, technically, she also received three Grammy Hall of Fame Awards and a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. So technically, I think we'd say she had 12 Grammys. Wow. She was honored by the Kennedy Center in 2005 and 
She broke ground in other ways too. In 2021, she told NBC, one of my early career goals was to become the first black woman to fill stadiums around the world. At the time, it seemed impossible, but I never gave up and I'm so happy I made that dream come true. This woman endured. If you look at her timeline, she performed across decades. Yes. Decades. Because she continued going into her 70s. She really was the queen of rock and roll. And countless artists have given her credit for inspiring them. Everybody from Lady Gaga to Janis Joplin to Mick Jagger. When she passed, a tribute from Beyonce said, my beloved queen, I love you endlessly. I'm so grateful for your inspiration and all the ways you have paved the way. Mm. But as we said before, she inspired and is celebrated by people outside of celebrities. She's inspired all of us too. Again, she is widely applauded for being so open about that abusive relationship mm-hmm. she had, as well as other struggles in her life. When she passed, her family put out a statement, a piece of which said, with her, the world loses a music legend and a role model. And people admire her, not just for being a superstar, but for being a survivor, for being yeah. such a strong person. That was something that the makers of the documentary Tina said they said we want to show her not as superhuman but as human Mm -hmm. and her family her cousins actually spoke about her and they said when she was around her family she wasn't this superstar she was she was Tina Tina. she was just there or they probably called her Anna Anna. they might Mm -hmm. have but one of her cousins said we'll miss that the fact that you know even though she was world famous she remembered her roots and she was comfortable in her skin so i'm going to close this with a word from tina herself something i heard her express several different times as i was watching the different interviews and i loved this this is from an interview i believe she's doing with oprah i'm happier than i ever thought that life would become for me so that means that most of my hardships came while I was young growing up and in the last days when normally people suffer from old age and sicknesses my happiness came I am I'm really thoroughly happy I love that I do too I loved it that she found her happiness and something else that made me really happy was I started with that little excerpt from the Good Morning America interview Mm -hmm. after that little segment that tribute to Tina ended one of the other anchors Robin commented you know it's always tragic we're so sad to lose someone that we all love so much but she said you know what I love was that people recognized Tina while she was alive yes that she said that gives me peace and it makes me feel okay about this because people gave her the kudos they recognized Mm -hmm. what they had in her Mm -hmm. she was happy Mm -hmm. she lived a wonderful full life it was kind of like it's okay Mm -hmm. you know that's a good way to put that armchair psychologist well that brings us to the armchair all right i I don't have a specific question i just want to know what are your thoughts well i feel like she's got so many legacies she's got her talent legacy she's got the obviously the award legacy but it almost feels as though her personal life and her personal the way she overcame her personal adversity is her biggest legacy and I don't mean that as a disrespect to the stuff she did professionally but it's just so beautiful the way that she got out of this situation and then talked about it and didn't hide it away and made it part of who she was and was an inspiration to other people because that that makes her more accessible to the average person okay not all of us well like 99% 
10% of us are not going to have her professional achievements. But there are a lot of people who are currently in the situation that she was in that she escaped from and thinking, and, and you can't even say, well, she got out of it because she's Tina Turner. No, she black, she walked out with 36 cents in her pocket. Mm-hmm. So if she can walk out with 36 cents, then you can do it too. And you could also say, well, why didn't she leave? Blah, blah, blah. We don't know. We don't know what goes on in anybody's home or what they're going through. But the point is she was planning, she was making a plan and she did when she felt like she could and when she couldn't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. Goodness. I don't even know where to begin because I mean, I've, I've kind of lived, her, you know, when you, when you research deeply, yeah, you've lived with her. I've lived with her for a while now. Mm-hmm. I have so much admiration for her. So I, I want to say a hundred things, but I'm just going to pick one, which actually is a little similar to what you just said. It's that idea of how she inspires all of us. I think what I love is that a lot of us think that our, our life is over when we reach a certain age, mm-hmm. that you accomplish what you're going to accomplish when you're younger. Mm-hmm. And then you just kind of let things go and Tina was such a role model for learning, mm-hmm. reflecting, growing, not letting anything stop her. Yeah. She had her first number one hit as the 44-year-old artist who had just reinvented herself yeah. and continued to tour in her 70s and was still writing books and memoirs and guides for happiness. Yeah. This woman was living life till the very end. Yeah. And that spoke to me. Yeah, that spoke to me. So Tina, kudos to you as an artist, as a person, as a role model, survivor, as a survivor. You've inspired us on so many levels. A huge cheers to you. Cheers. If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website, www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can join the Scandal Water community through our Scandal Water Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandal Water Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandal Water theme and other music. Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.